Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right, we'll study the Bible. You guys ready? Good, I'm excited. Okay, so 2 Corinthians chapter two, we're reading through Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church. Just a couple quick recaps. If you weren't here last week, you can definitely go to our website and listen to the message online, but just some context. Um, Paul planted the church in Corinth during his second missionary journey. Um, And so if you're not familiar with the missionary journeys of Paul, essentially what happened was after Jesus rose from the dead, his disciples were commissioned by him to go out and preach the gospel. Um, Just about 50 days after he rose from the dead, this thing called the day of Pentecost happened where the Holy Spirit fell on the people who were praying there, tongues of fire on everybody, they were speaking in weird languages, and the church was uh, basically um, given the powering of the Holy Spirit to go and accomplish the work of God. And from that point forward, man, wild stuff were happening. People were, um, you know, preaching the gospel, meeting each other's homes, and that's kind of the beginning of the book of Acts. Uh, So you got like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts. So if you want to read about the birth of the early church, that's in that book. Um, But somewhere along that line, this guy named Saul, who was actually, um, it was kind of his mission in life to kind of murder Christians, to kill them, to stop the movement and the spread of the gospel. We can think of him kind of like like a terrorist. That's kind of what he did. God saved him, changed his life completely, and he gave his life over to God, and he became one of the um, kind of main uh, leaders in planting the early churches. And he took three main missions trips. He took a fourth one, but that kind of ended up with him in Rome. And so you know, it's kind of debatable whether it's three or four, but three definite main ones and four on his way up to Rome. The first one was kind of a short little jaunt just around um, up northern, uh, north of Israel, around kind of what we would see today as like Turkey, those areas. The second one went as far over into like Greece, um, and that was on that second journey where he planted the church in Corinth. And when he was there and he planted that church, he stayed there for a year and a half. Things were good, and he left and went back to um, uh, to, to launch a, a third missions trip. And on that third missions trip, he started on this journey and ended in Ephesus. So on the second missionary journey, he planted the church in Ephesus and uh, the church in Corinth. Those are important because we have letters to those churches. That's the book of Ephesians and the book of Corinthians, first and second. Um, But on that third missionary journey, he goes to Ephesus first, and he stays there for like two and a half years. And while he's there in Ephesus, he starts getting reports about that church that he had planted in Corinth, that things are not going well. Like they're adopting, um, well not adopting, but they're taking a lot of their cultural experience um, from just the world and the way that Corinth works, and they're bringing that into the church. And what's happening is um, kind of a watering down of the gospel and God's work and the teachings of Jesus to kind of better suit the people. And so what's, what's essentially happening from what Paul is hearing is the, the, the church is not telling people to forsake the world. They're bringing the world into the church and trying to let them live right next to each other peaceably. Right? Now that's important for us because that's happening today in a lot of modern American churches. 
There is this idea that I don't have to forsake who I was or the world. I don't have to give up anything. I can bring that with me into my life as a Christian, and I can just say no to the things that I don't want to change, and and I can say yes to the stuff that I used to enjoy doing, and I can also kind of tip my hat to Jesus and just say, yeah, I'm a follower of you, but I'm also a follower of this and a follower of that, and I'm really into these kind of things, and it's just kind of collectively all about who I am. The problem is, When you come to Christ, what happens is your identity is challenged to be put into the grave so that a new uh, resurrection can take place in, in a manner of speaking. The call to follow Jesus is the call to die. And what that means is dying to yourself, dying to your desires, dying to your flesh, dying to that thing inside of you that says, I wanna do this right now. Well, Jesus clearly spoke, this is not something that his followers do. Well, he'd probably make an exception for me. I'm I'm a nice guy. He'd be okay with me doing it. That is the mentality that we have in a lot of American churches and, and churches abroad as well, not just America. But this idea that I don't, if I'm a Christian, have to forsake or change or turn away from anything. I can be who I am and also adopt this new way of thinking. And Paul's, essentially, his whole first letter to the Corinthians is, you've got it all wrong. And so he wrote that letter, 1 Corinthians, while he was spending those two and a half, three years in Ephesus. And after he wrote the letter, he sent one of his um, kind of followers, Titus, over to Corinth to check on them. Well then, as we talked last week, things in Ephesus started falling apart. And if you wanna read about all this, this is in the book of Acts. That's why I brought that up originally. So from like Acts like eight, nine, all the way up to like the end of the book, that kind of chronicles um, uh, the birth of the early church, some of the things that were happening with Saul, Stephen, and then eventually his conversion and planting these churches. So if you wanna know what's happening on these journeys, go to the book of Acts. But these are the letters that were written during it. So he writes this first letter and he sends Titus over to, to, to check on them. And uh, in around Acts 19, we find out that while he's in Ephesus, this riot takes place and he fears for his life, so he has to leave. And when he leaves, he decides, okay, well, I'm gonna head on over to Corinth. But he goes up north, crosses over to Macedonia and spends some time in some other areas. Um, and while he's up there in one of those northern areas, just north of Corinth, he writes a second letter and that's this letter. So it's just a few uh, months before he gets to Corinth, he writes the second letter, um, and that is what we're reading today. So that's kind of a background on where this happened, how it, how it took place. Um, eventually he does get to Corinth, things seem to get a little bit better, but this letter contains a lot of correction, instruction, um, a defense of his ministry, uh, there's a very personal tone, all the things we talked about last week, but we're reading it because it's good for us. Because all of these things are things we need. We need edification, we need correction, uh, we need instruction, uh, we need to understand Paul's tone. Um, It's important for us because uh, we live in a culture where, uh, especially, I'm gonna speak to the guys just right, because typically um, ladies don't have a problem coming to church and listening to a lot of the flowery language that we read and that we sing, right? That's just kind of, and I'm not trying to be like, you know, uh, uh, you know, just, painting with too broad of a brush, but in my experience in 20 years of ministry, it is never really that difficult from what I've seen for women in the church to kind of get on board with what's going on because a lot of it is very poetic and flowery and it just kind of lends itself to that emotional side. Like, and I get that. 
But as a guy in the church, I also understand that like this morning, singing some of the songs that we sang, they have a, a, a little bit of, of a, a little softer tone. As we read through today, like Paul's gonna talk in 2 Corinthians, and he's gonna use imagery like, man, being a Christian is like, like being in this processional of Christ, and there's this aroma filling the room. It's like, I don't know if I can kind of really get down and understand aromas. It's not a thing that I kind of think about. I don't spend my disposable income on smelling good, right? And so as a guy, I understand sitting in this and kind of diving through this, there can be this disconnect if you're like, I don't know if this is really speaking to me. So uh, like as a guy who, um, like I cut my finger this week, um, I'm building my own AR-15. As a guy, I understand that there is a certain amount of um, stretch that you have to just kind of get into and understand to kind of get this because what is happening is not just a signing up to an organization, it is a buying into a relationship. Do you follow me? Like this thing that we have with God is not just a, you, you, uh, like you paid your dues and now you're a part of a health club, right? It's not just an organization that you join and that you just do some things and he does some things. It is more like a marriage, it is a relationship. There are nuances to the communication. There are things that you're gonna have to just understand and, and buy into um, that may be a little more tapping into the emotional side of who you are, but that is okay. You follow me? Please follow me, right? I don't wanna be alone up here. So when we go into this, just understand there's a little bit of that um, disconnect uh, for some of us in here, but that's okay because what it does is it pushes you into an area where you feel uncomfortable and in that area of uncomfortable is where you change. You don't change when you feel comfortable. When things are going the way you want them to go, you don't change. But when things start falling apart and you get uncomfortable, that's when you start grabbing onto the things that are worth grabbing onto, and sometimes grabbing on things that are not worth grabbing onto, but that's the area of faith. And there's no tangible stuff to that. Sometimes it, you're just gonna have to understand. It. The people who pray the most are the ones who are in the hospital. You follow me? Because until you hit the point where there's nothing you can do to make things better, there's no need for you to rely on a God who can make things different or better. You follow? This idea that like, I'm self-sufficient, I'm okay, I don't need anybody telling me what to do or, 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 or you know, things are good, but the moment your business starts falling apart and you can't make the bills, all of a sudden you're, 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 pretty praying, you're a praying man, I'm a man of God, because I gotta start seeking the Lord because there are things outside of my control. So when Paul last week starts talking about this pressure that he's under, but that's a good pressure because it causes him to think about and be reminded about stuff that he forgets on a regular basis, that's where we live too. God pushes you into these uncomfortable areas and we spend a lot of time praying, oh, this is the enemy, is he the devil, and well, what if it's not the enemy doing this to you? What if the Lord is kind of pushing you into this area of being uncomfortable because what he wants more than anything else is, is not you being happy and comfortable, it's you relying on him. Cool? All right, so that's where we are today. So let's pick up um, in 2 Corinthians chapter two. Let's read, um, oh, let's see. I'm gonna read the, um, I'm gonna read the last little bit of where we finished last week. And then I'm gonna jump into uh, 2 Corinthians 2. So let's back up just a little bit to one. Um, let's 
Oh, you know what? We went into two a little bit last week. That's right. So I didn't, we, we went past one and we went into like, uh, I think we read verses one, two, three, and four. So let's do this. Let's pick up on verse four today because um, that's where we left off and there's kind of like, like a door swings on hinges. There's a little hinge uh, where he talks about love and pain um, and his desire to kind of want to um, not cause pain. That kind of is important to going into five. So we read four last week, but let's pick up there. Second Corinthians 2 uh, verse 4. It says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know that the abundant love that I have for you. And then he goes into verse 5, and he, he, he takes that word pain, and he kind of just he runs off in the other direction. Now, if anyone has caused you pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, now he's talking about a specific situation, we'll get to that in a minute, but he's talking about a guy in the church who's been causing a lot of pain. Verse six, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to affirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. So he's referencing the first letter where he gave some kind of instruction on how to handle this guy in the church who has become a real issue. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Okay, now this requires a little bit of background to understand what he's talking about, but I backed up to four because Paul uses a literary technique that you're going to see a lot going forward, and if you can understand now, it will help you decipher a lot of his other writings like Romans. So this idea that when Paul is writing, he introduces these little concepts, and once the word comes out and he introduces that concept, he's like, you know what? We're gonna take that, we're gonna riff on this, and I'm gonna teach a principle based off of this thing that I just said. And he does that here. So what he does is he's talking about him not wanting to come or write to them because he didn't wanna cause them pain. And then in verse five, he's like, okay, well now we're talking about pain. Let's address this issue of this guy in your church who's causing a lot of pain. You follow? So to understand the specific situation, we kind of have to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, so the first letter that he wrote. And we talked about this last year in our message series, the end of the year. If you want to go back and listen to it, it's online. But 1 Corinthians 5, what happened was there was a, a guy in the church, and it, uh, in the Corinthian church, he was in, you know, in leadership or something, he was invested in the local church, and it came out that he had been having a sexual relationship with his dad's wife. So, this is stepmom. And the church was okay with it. Why was the church okay? Because in Corinth, that's not a big deal. Because in Corinth, there are centers of worship that are centered around prostitution. So this kind of thing in the Corinthian culture, not really a big deal. But when you come into the church, when you come into Christ, things are way different. You have to forsake that lifestyle and you can't tolerate these things. So Paul heard this and he kind of flipped out and he let the church know. He's like, what are you doing? Have you lost your minds? This is not something that's okay. You have to deal with this guy. Well, it came out that apparently the church had tried to deal with this guy, and the guy was just like, uh, 
I don't really see where, I don't see why this is a big issue. Jesus never really said specifically that this was an issue. You hear that one a lot. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't know Jesus said a whole lot about that. So he refused to repent. So what Paul's instructions are, if you go to the guy and he refuses to repent and you, you bring it before the church leadership and they are clear about outlining, okay, this is, this is a thing that's not okay, and he still refuses to repent, what options do you have? Paul told the church in 1 Corinthians 5, you need to kick this guy out of the church. Now for some of us, it's like, oh, that's not a thing we do. That's mean. Jesus wouldn't kick anybody out. But Paul's instructions to the other church is, if you hit a point where someone refuses to acknowledge sin, refuses to repent, then one of the options or one of the tools in your bag as far as seeing change in a person's heart is you need to leverage community to see transformation in the person's heart. There are certain benefits that come with being a Christian. There are certain benefits that come being in community. You have a need, guess what? You've got a whole church of people who are just ready to meet that need and help you. You're in a tough situation, you're a single mom, uh, things are, are difficult, guess what? You've got an entire church who loves to rally around you and help you and support you and, and, and offer some daycare in this opportunity or, or there, the, you, you've got church community, you've got people who know you, who are growing, who can rejoice when it's time to have a wedding, guess what? You don't have to do it in an empty church. You've got a whole church who wants to show up and rejoice. You have a baby, guess what? We're showing up, we're bringing meals. But if you refuse to accept that Christ says, this is not okay, and you say, well, it is okay, I'm gonna do it anyway, you do not get to reap the benefits of community while also saying, I love sin. So what Paul says is if you get to a place where you encourage and you expose and you show the person where they're walking in error, if they refuse to repent over and over and over, one of the things that you're supposed to do is eventually get to a place where you leverage community and you let them know, look, I love you, but you can't have this and also have that, so you're gonna have to choose. So the church took Paul's words, they followed what he told them to do, and the guy repented. Good news, it worked. What Paul said worked. But now you got the situation where the church has said, you're out, man. We're not gonna fellowship with you. You don't get the joys of this and also the sin of that. And the guy was like, oh, well, uh, well then I repent. I turn my back on this. Can I come back? And now the church is just like, uh, I don't know, Paul didn't, Paul didn't say. <laughs> I'm not really sure what to do next. So Paul is writing here, five through 11 is what he's telling me. He's like, look, the guy that created a ton of drama within the church, you kicked him out and it worked. His repentance is pure. Now it's time to let the guy back in. He says, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. You don't need to worry about how, because the, the church's opinion was like, well, Paul told us to kick him out and now he's repented. So if we let him back in, like, is Paul gonna be upset with us? We don't really know 
what we're supposed to do. Paul's like, no, if, if what I said worked, let the guy, now it's time to love. Now it's time to shower him with love and forgiveness and bring him back into the fold and let him enjoy the benefits of community because he repented. And know that when you do that, you're forgiving of his sin and him. I'm forgiving. I'm not there with you, but know that I'm not holding a grudge. I'm forgiving him just like you are. And, and as a general rule is what Paul is saying, I don't walk around with uh, holding grudges because I just don't find that being very fruitful. And the reason why is because of what he says at the very end, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. What he's saying is I don't make a practice of holding grudges and remembering what people have done wrong to me because if I am, then I become guilty of unforgiveness and that is a tactic of Satan. I'm used by the Lord for his purposes to build his kingdom. I don't wanna be used by Satan to build the kingdom of darkness. And one of the best ways that Satan can recruit for his team is to, to, to con, uh, convince you to harbor unforgiveness in your heart. When you're walking around refusing to forgive people, guess whose team you're not on? Jesus, the guy who forgave you of your sins. So Paul is making an argument, look, now it's time to let him back in and you don't have to worry about how I feel about it. If I was there, I would forgive him and let him walk in forgiveness just as much uh, as, as I'm encouraging you to. And, and, and just as a side note, as a, as a just kind of a way of life, just go ahead and learn to walk in forgiveness as a way of doing life so that you don't walk around holding grudges because that is what the enemy wants you to do. And we're not um, uh, ignorant of his schemes. He loves doing this, and we're not going to play by his rules. All right, let's pick it up in verse 12. So this is interesting because he gives us in just two verses kind of an introduction, or not an introduction, but kind of a synopsis of, of his travels once he left Ephesus. And I told you, remember, he sent Titus over to Corinth to check on them, and then he went up to Macedonia to try and find out how Titus was doing, but he hadn't seen him yet. So he references that in 12 and 13. But then, in classic Paul fashion, he interrupts himself, and he doesn't get back to this thought until like seven chapters later. Because he gets riffing on this idea of what it means to be a Christian in ministry and he just kind of runs with it at like full speed. He doesn't stop. And so it's kind of weird. He starts in 12 and 13, you'll see it in a minute. But he pauses that and he doesn't pick it up again until like uh, I think around 2 Corinthians like 7, 5 or somewhere around there. So let's read it. We're going to go to the end of chapter 2. He says, for when I came to Troas to pre the, preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was um, opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So when I left Ephesus, went up to Troas, I was expecting by the time that Titus had gone over and checked on you guys, I'm sure he would have met me in Troas, but he wasn't. So it was a good time of ministry and a lot of good stuff happened, but he wasn't there. And so I was kind of um, not at rest. So I took leave, went over to Macedonia. <clears throat> uh, and then hard stop. What happened in Macedonia? Uh, you gotta wait until chapter seven to find out what happens. Um, I'll give you a spoiler alert. Um, he eventually meets up with Titus. Um, good news comes, which is actually what prompted this letter. This is why he writes 2 Corinthians, because good stuff. He hears from Titus, hey, remember the letter that you sent? Remember all the stuff that's been happening? Good stuff. Like they're starting to transform. And this is why he's writing this letter. So he, enter, he interrupts himself and he goes into verse 14 and he says, but thanks to God who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. 
right? All right, just go ahead and buckle up. We're entering into Disney flowery land territory, words that you don't use on a regular basis, probably don't say fragrance a lot. Procession, maybe only saw one at Disney World. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Now here's what I love about Paul. He does use that flowery language a little bit, but then, man, he just kind of slaps you with the back of his hand to one, a fragrance from death to death. Oh, wow. So, so our lives as Christians are kind of like the aroma of God. Everywhere we go, it's just kind of spreading. But for some people, it's sweet. And for others, it smells like death. Okay. All right, Paul. I'm following. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the others, uh, a fragrance from life to life. So who is sufficient for these things? For, for we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now, this is interesting. And unless you're kind of following really close, you're going to miss the fact that um, uh, Paul just kind of dropped a little sarcasm in there. He's, one of the things that he's been critiqued of by this church is the fact that there are other um, church leaders or so-called apostles who like to stand up and say things contrary to what Paul taught this church. Paul planted this church and people came in after him saying, well, some of the things that Paul said, they're not actually correct. So maybe instead of doing this, maybe we just kind of do this over here. And so what he does is he, he uses this imagery of, of fragrance and procession, we'll talk about that in a minute, but he finished this section up with the idea that, look, the way we see the kingdom of God, the way we see Christian ministry is different than the people who've been coming in after us telling us or telling you that it needs to look different than what we've done. Um, we're not like some of those guys who kind of come in and, and peddle God's word. That's a great phrase. You know, like Instagram preachers who like to peddle God's word for likes. You know, people who like to peddle God's word so that you'll pay their ministry money so they can send you like a vial of water from the Jordan River but it's probably from their pool in the backyard. <laughs> the people who like to peddle God's word by writing these books with no real content in it that challenge you to change. The kind of people who peddle God's word and convince you that there's not really a need to get plugged into a local community so people can know who you are and be a part of a local church. This internet thing is enough for you. People who peddle God's word. We're not like those. We're more sincere than them. Well, I like that, Paul. That's, that's sneaky, and I do like it. So what he's doing here, he sets up at the beginning, like I said, this, under, this understanding of Titus. Um, but in 14, he gets into this idea of mixing two imagery. So let's look at this mixing of imageries. The first one he gives us is a, pro, a procession. Um, so I think, the, like I said before, the best way to think about a procession is um, kind of like a parade, you know, like the Macy's Day Parade, or you think about if you've gone to Disney World and they do the big parade down the middle of the streets. This idea that there is one person in the front and he's leading this big line of people behind him. And then the people in the back don't necessarily see the person in the front. They just know we're just following the person in front of us or the person in front of him. So uh, the idea is that there's this long parade of, of what God is doing through the streets of the world, and it's including all kinds of people in it. So he takes that imagery, and then he marries it with this other one of being a, a fragrance, which is essentially like a pleasant, sweet smell. And what he's doing in these two is he's starting to contrast, and he will do this um, through the end of two, three, four, five, and six, he will start contrasting his view of Christian ministry with the rest of his um, critics 
view of Christian ministry. And this is helpful for us because it gives us a good understanding of what we should be looking for when it comes to a healthy church, um, healthy Christian walks in our family and in our own personal life. Okay, so the way Paul lays this out is good for us, and it's good for us because it gives us a baseline for us measuring our own personal life. So he says, look, when I think about Christian ministry, when I think about the Christian life, it's kind of like um, living uh, in a procession where Jesus is leading everywhere, which is good news because most of us live like we're in a procession, but Jesus is behind us, right? I wanna drive, and Jesus just navigate. Do I turn right up here? You know, why do you like that? Because you have the steering wheel, because you're in control, because we like being in control. We don't like relinquishing control to a God we can't see, and we have to put our faith in. But Paul says, if you want to have the proper view of Christian life, you're not driving. You're in the back seat. You're not even in the passenger seat. You're in the back seat. You're behind him, and he's driving. If it's kind of like a processional, he's the one in front, and he's dictating, we're gonna turn right. Yeah, but left is so pretty. Look at all the cool things left. You don't get to turn left. You're in a procession, and you're following him, and he's going right, and therefore you are going right. So in Paul's mind, a Christian life is in a procession where he is leading, but also it's not just a procession because in that procession, God is using you um, almost like an opened bottle of cologne uh, or perfume. As you walk through that, you're spreading this smell or this aroma everywhere you go. So when Jesus says, we're gonna turn right, all right, I'm gonna turn right. The street you go down when you turn right, you are filling that entire street with the aroma and the beauty and the smells of God and his kingdom. That's what it means to be a Christian. You are following Jesus and everywhere you go, you are filling the spaces of your life, your home, your bedroom, your office, um, out on the lake while you're fishing, out in the shooting range while you're sighting in your rifle, ever at Home Depot, at all of the stoplights on Capitol Circle, in the Chick-fil-A parking lot at noon because you made a bad decision. <laughs> Everywhere you go, you are filling those places with the aroma of Jesus. You look like you're just, man, you've been transformed and captured by the king of the universe. You look like you've got good news to share. When people look at you like, man, you just, you look like you got something good to say. I do. Man, let me tell you about Jesus and how he's changed my life. That's Paul's view of Christian ministry. That's Paul's view of living the Christian life, which is interesting to us because most of our lives, they don't look like that. Do you ever wonder why so many people ask you, are you okay? Because you don't look like you're okay. <laughs> and then for some, well, I just have that kind of face. Well, maybe you should put that face in his face for a little while and see if some things change. Because I understand that some of you just have this resting, angry face. But you know where that comes from nine times out of ten? A resting, angry heart. You're just angry and upset at things. And look, I get it, I've got an incredibly strong 
uh, eyebrow line, like so strong that on most days, those of you sitting in the back, you probably can't even tell if my eyes are open right now because my, si- my eyes are, I got little tiny eyes and a big old, uh, and so, and, and I got a big beard and I'm six foot 10 and it's a lot. So from a distance on any given day, that guy looks menacing. He looks mean. Is, are you upset? I, I get it. So I have to be proactive about being the aroma of Christ so that I'm not keeping people at a distance just because of this. I get it. So I have to be proactive. I have to consciously say, I'm going to raise my eyebrows and I'm going to walk around with my eyebrows. So sometimes, uh, are you surprised? No, I'm just, man, I just love Jesus and I don't want you to be scared of me. Why am I telling you this? Because some of you need to put some of these things into practice. The point Paul is making is that we are in the world and we should be making a difference in the world. We should look different than the world. We should carry ourselves different than the world. And the best way to understand it is kind of like when you open a bottle of uh, perfume or you know, when you walk into a home and they're cooking something really good, the moment you smell it, you're like, oh, that's good. I can't wait to eat that. You haven't actually consumed it yet, but just the smell transforms you. That's what Paul is saying. You should live in a way that just, when people get a scent of who you are and who you follow, man, they just, they just can't. Please tell me, what, what, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> the idea that we should live in a way that is attracting to, the, to a dark and broken world is what Paul is trying to get across here. And what he does at the end, like I said, is he starts using that. He's like, okay, here's how I think about ministry. And that's contrary to the way that my critics think about ministry. Um, uh, Paul's kind of credentials and his skills were being questioned because he, he, he was considered not really a great speaker. Um, obviously, he was a good writer, but even in writing, um, he can get a little bit lost to the point where even in one of Peter's uh, writings, he references how hard it is to understand Paul's writings. I mean, that's gotta be tough in the early church, right? One guy's writing about you. He's like, I know it's good you're reading all this Paul, um, but it is difficult to understand him. Am I right? Am I right? I'm right. It's hard to follow the guy. There was, one, there was one story in Acts where he was preaching and he preached so long that a teenager who was sitting uh, in a windowsill actually fell asleep, fell out the like third story window, hit the ground, died. Paul had to get up, walk down to the street, raise the kid back from the dead, and then he went back to preaching. So Paul was known for kind of being long-winded. He interrupts his own self here and doesn't come back to it for another three chapters. But the idea being when Paul is communicating his view of Christian ministry, he's contrasting with his critics and they were saying, you know, he's not really skilled. He doesn't really have the credentials. And Paul just kind of just gives him a left hook and he's like, look, man, I'm, I'm the kind of guy who's not here to just peddle God's word. I'm not really the kind of guy who just stands on the street corner and says things to say things. I'm not the kind of guy who will write like a 10 chapter book and really the only first two chapters are what I'm saying. And then like the last eight are just kind of filler because I had to hit some um, page limit for my publisher. I'm not one of those guys. That's what he's saying. So he's illustrating this idea. He's like, look, when I look at God and when I look at what he's doing in my life, it looks more like a fragrant procession and not really a business opportunity, which is what I see a lot in the church. And unfortunately, churches I planted is what Paul would say. I told you what was true, what was good, and now you're selling out because people have a slick tongue and they're telling you that you can get shortcuts to being transformed by God if you just make enough payments per month. Now let's go into chapter three and pick up in verse one. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? 
So he's, he's, he wants to pause. It's like, okay, I know I'm talking about myself and our ministry again. Or am, I, am I getting puffed up? Am I supposed to, am I starting to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letters of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you were a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are suffering in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. All right, we're going to stop right there because he starts switching imagery, and he borrows, just like he did um, in 2. He takes this idea. He's like, okay, now that we're talking about the Spirit and the letter of the law, let's kind of go into that direction. So before he goes there, let's kind of reflect on what he said. These critics have started offering, apparently, letters of recommendation to prove their credentials. So when, when Paul comes into town, he says, like, I'm Paul. I planted this church. That's all the credentials that I need. You can listen to what I say because God called me himself. I saw Jesus when I got knocked off of my donkey and I couldn't see for like three days. Those are my credentials. But other people come in and say, well, some of the things that Paul says are not really true. Maybe we can modify some of these things or change that. Um, and what credentials do I have to say that? Here's some letters of recommendations for some other places that I've been in. Well, it's, it doesn't seem like you stayed anywhere longer than a year. Eh, but look at all the letters of recommendations I have. So Paul addresses that. Essentially, he says, look, um, all of these people are coming in with these letters of recognition to prove who they are. And I know that the, even to us, this is kind of a familiar concept. The idea that a letter of a recommendation is helpful for us, we still use it in business today. Because when someone comes to you and says um, uh, X, Y, and Z, how do you know that that's true? How do you know that they have some backing that what they're saying is true? Well, if you've got a letter from somebody I respect and I know that has some credentials, then I can trust. So essentially, a letter of recommendation is a way of saying, if you don't trust me, you can trust this other guy who has some, some letters at the end of his name. And what Paul is saying is that when it comes to Christian ministry, from my point of view, I don't need letters of recommendation because you are my letters of recommendation. And the point he's getting across with that that's helpful to us is that when it comes to examining individuals for ministry, like Paul is doing here, when it comes to measuring the health of a church, nothing beats changed lives. That's important. Because it is so easy as a Christian, as a pastor, people in church leadership, to create a system of metrics to measure the growth and the health. How healthy is a church? Well, let's look at the finance. Are the giving, is the giving good? Let's look at how many people showed up versus how many people showed up last year, this year, the year before. There are so many metrics that are outward manipulated. Like, okay, if I put an ad in the Tallahassee Democrat this week saying that if you show up to Red Hills Church next week, everybody gets an iPad. You get an iPad and you get an iPad and you get an iPad. Guess how many people are going to show up? The whole county probably. Well, maybe not. Maybe a car, okay? Everyone's got an iPad now. The point is if I offer $100 bills at the door, there's gonna be a lot of people who, who show up and we could fill the room. But if I use that as a metric of the health of the church, then I'm lying to myself about what God is doing. 
a full room is not a healthy metric to understand what God is doing. What Paul is saying is if you wanna measure the health of a person or a church, there is no better metric than changed lives. Look at a person's life. Are they the same way they were last week? Are they the same way they were last year? If not, God's up to something. Look at the people who sit in the church. Are they leaving different than when they walked in? If they are, God's up to something. And that is all the recommendation that you need. God is working in his people and that hard stop is the measurement that Paul uses for understanding healthy church ministry. So. How does it apply to us? Do you want to know if a pastor is qualified to lead? Here's what you do. Look at his family, look at his friends, look at the church he pastors, and ask yourself, are there changed lives? Do the people love Jesus more than they love the pastor? Or do they come because they like the way he communicates? Or because he's handsome? Or because he keeps it nice and short? Or because the service is predictable? Or do they come because they're in love with Jesus? And they're surrounded with people who love Jesus and we love singing to him and we love learning about him. And we don't just do that here in the room. We do it at home. We do it in our, around our table for dinner. We do it uh, on vacation. We love cracking this thing open. We love reading it. We love talking about it with our friends. We love singing it. If so, the spirit is at work in, them, uh, in, in these people. How, how do you know if a church is healthy? Well, look at the people. Do they love worshiping Jesus? Do they love reading his word? Do the people look different on a consistent weekly basis? Is change happening on a small level and on a large level? Are people being challenged to think about things differently, to organize their money differently, to rearrange their calendar differently, to, to give themselves to something greater than themselves? If so, the work of God is working in that church. The Holy Spirit is working in the hearts of the people when you can see change taking place. Now, let's go to that imagery switch that he says. Paul uses the imagery of um, the letter and the spirit and he continues his thoughts on ministry. So let's go to verse seven. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if, we, uh, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So Paul takes, so he ends six with this, um, uh, he talks about, um, okay, when it comes to actually writing letters, that doesn't hold the same weight as the work of the Spirit. And when it comes to letters and Spirit, I'm gonna switch, you kind of borrow that into talking about the contrast between the letter and the law and the Spirit's work in Christ. The letter, um, historically in Paul's writings, is always symbolic of the law of Moses. And that was given to the people to diagnose sin. It was treated by the people as their savior. These stone tablets are my savior. If I follow this law, I'm good with God. But that's not why God gave them. God gave them in order to diagnose sin and to say, wow, 
I am whole, I, I am, I'm a wreck. I can't follow any of these things. I need help, God. The, the law was meant to drive people to God and the people treated the law like God. You follow? So what Paul is saying is that when we're talking about letters and spirits, there's another thing that I can borrow in this idea that Moses' law was kind of like a letter and all it did was bring condemnation and was meant to diagnose sin, but God through Jesus' work and the spirit meant to cover that sin to save us and transform us. And the former glory of what Moses did and what he's doing here is he's referencing um, Exodus 34. There's this story um, where all the people of Israel, they finally make it to the mountain after their freed from Egypt. Moses goes up to the top of the mountain. While he's up there, he spends a certain amount of time. When he comes back down, he's been really like physically transformed by the glory of God. He spent so much time in God's presence that his face is literally shining. It's glowing. Dude's radioactive. It's like, it's, it's so bright that Moses has to take a veil and cover his face so the people don't see it. And what Paul is saying here is that as great and as amazing as that was, what Jesus did in his glory of death and resurrection, it far surpasses that. In fact, it surpasses it so much, it dwarfs it in a way where it doesn't seem like a glory at all. It would be like you taking that really bright 800 lumen flashlight that you bought from Amazon in the middle of the night and be like, look how bright this thing is. Oh, I, I, I can see to Texas, look at this thing, it's amazing. And all of a sudden the sun comes up and you can't even tell if your flashlight's on. That's the difference he's saying. The glory contrast between what God did with the people of Israel and Moses, it, 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 it gets dwarfed in comparison to what Jesus is doing. And so what Paul is saying is that when it comes to ministry, the, 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 the responsibility of a Christian is to, like Moses had his face glowing and shining, we as Christians are supposed to let God's glory shine and not seek our own personal glory. But he doesn't stop there. He builds on that idea in verse 12. So let's read through 12 down to 18, and this is where we'll finish in chapter 3. Verse 12, it says, Now since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. And, and, and for, to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Ooh, those are fighting words for a Jew in the first century. And, and honestly, for, for a, a person of the Jewish faith today, for Paul to look at you and say, look, when you read the law of Moses, I don't know how to tell you, but uh, you're not gonna see the glory of God. In the same way that, Mo remember how Moses had to cover his face? That's what's happening to you when you read, unless you come to Jesus. Jesus is the only one who lifts that veil so that when you read, things make sense. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Somebody should write a song about that. That's a great, that's a great verse. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being, this is good, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And this is good, because what he's saying here, read verse 18 again. When we all, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord. So when you look at Jesus, you're going to be transformed 
into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So essentially what he says is that when you look at Jesus, you'll be transformed by Jesus. Transformation comes by looking, beholding, gazing Jesus. Now, this is imagery, right? I'm not saying that we all transform as Christians by just sitting around in a circle and just looking up into the sky. Make me different. What Paul is illustrating here is that, you know how Moses, he had to cover his face because of the glory? Yeah, as Christians, we're gonna do the total opposite, like run in the opposite direction. Don't cover your face, lift the veil off and let it shine for the whole world to see because this is a very dark world and what they need most is light. And where does that light come from? That light comes from staring at Jesus. Now what does that mean to stare at Jesus? Looking at Jesus, I believe, means in times of prayer, letting him capture your affections. Looking at Jesus means in prayer, allowing the affections that have stirred your heart in this world melt away and say, I only wanna be stirred by the stuff that stirs your heart. I wanna like what you like. This is in prayer. Lord, change me. I wanna hate the stuff that you hate. Because right now, I love the stuff you hate. I love it. I can't get enough of it. I can't stop eating it. I love it. I'm like a dog that returns to its own vomit. I know it's bad for me, but I can't get enough of it. I love it. Change me. I don't have the power to do it because I keep going back. So in prayer, I'm praying, God, change me. Jesus, change me. I'm beholding you. And as I'm staring at you by faith, I'm told from Paul's words that the, the, the longer I stare, the more I'm transformed because in life, you become what you look at. When, when your eyes are fixed on pornography, your heart develops a desire for sexual immorality, you follow? When your heart just stares at the feeling and the control that you get from alcohol or substance abuse or, or the things that you get from uh, prescription painkillers, the, the, the numbing that you need deep down, staring at that, you become what you behold. That becomes the only reason why you're going to work, to get more money to buy more of that stuff. And this happens in good stuff too. Moms, God's gave you those kids and you love those little kitties, those little children, you love those kids. But if all you behold is your children, then your identity gets wrapped up in being a mom and then one day they grow up and they go out and accomplish great things in the world, but you can't let go of when they were nine because your identity is them, it's in nothing else. And when they're gone, you're at a loss. You don't know what to do because you've stared more at them than you have Jesus. But the beauty is, is if you stare at Jesus, you'll be transformed and you will be an amazing mom to them and you will be able to rejoice when they grow up and accomplish great things in the world without having to relive the glory years of when they were like from six to 11, right? Because as soon as 12 hits, we all, it's like, we're just holding on for dear life. Please just, man, it's, it's like watching, okay, I've sown so much in the soil. Am I gonna get a crop? Am I gonna yield anything? Right, and it's like one little thing, so all right, cool. All right, we can work with that, we can work with that. But one of those years, like when they're born up to like 10, 11, it's just like, no, you just gotta do what I say. No, 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 stop touching that, no. 
Why? Just because no. <laughs> and some of you are parenting, sorry, like, oh, well, I don't parent like that. All right, well, that's a different sermon. <laughs> but then you get into like 12 and 13, it's like, all right, it's time to start seeing whether there's fruit. Like, I've been sowing the word of God and speaking it in my home and speaking it into my kids. Now it's time for them to start walking their own two feet. I want to see if they can stand up. Can, can they start? And, and you're like, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. Or no, or you realize, wow, well, you didn't spend a whole lot of time staring at Jesus and, and talking, allowing the aroma to fill your home. And now you're, you're, you're like, oh God, well, let's do something different now. I, I got bad news for you. It's late. It's too late. Well, it's never too late, but it's late. You got to start doing that stuff when they're young. Because what's going to happen is when you're having one of those arguments or conversations with, they're going to start speaking your language back to you. And then God's going to be like, oh, so now you see yourself in them? It's difficult to parent yourself, isn't it? And you're like, yes, Lord, it is difficult to parent myself. Now I see why you're so full of love and grace, because <laughs> this is what it's like parenting me, isn't it, Lord? Yes, this is exactly what it's like. So when it comes to looking at Jesus, we do it in prayer, but we also do it in staring at the word. I can see Jesus when I read the scriptures. And so when I read them, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm looking at Jesus and I'm allowing the glory of God that I see to expose and transform me. I look at Jesus when I worship him. And what I'm doing in worship and, and when, when we're singing as a church, just as an example, you know, this is not worship, is not just singing. What, what we're doing right now is studying the word. This is worship. We're ascribing worth to God. But music is a good example. When we all come in here on time, we start singing and we close our eyes, we fix our eyes on Jesus. Like some of you, you're, man, you're, you are fully comfortable to just kind of stand there and worship and you're like, man, I'm just, I'm in it. You have no problem raising your hands. Now, my apologies to anybody if I sit behind you in worship. You're just going to get a whole lot of shouting, raised hands, a lot of screaming. Well, probably not screaming. Shouting. <laughs> I just love Jesus, and I want that to come out. A lot of movement. Like, what, Marshall, why do you move so much? I don't know, because when I went to Israel, I sat uh, with um, a, a rabbi, and he was talking about why the, the Jews at the Wailing Wall like to go like this when they pray. And the, the reason why is because their belief system is that when they're praying, they want every bone, every muscle, every cell in their body to be worshiping Jesus. And so they move their entire bodies as a, as a way to symbolize everything in me is moving and worshiping you. So I, I kind of picked it up. I kind of, I like that. I, I'm in worship, I'm, I'm constantly moving. I shift to side to side. I'm kind of, right, for some of you, just like, oh, that's not me. Please don't make me do anything. Don't ask, please don't ask me to raise my hands. Please don't do that. So during worship, for you, you just kind of stand there quietly. You close your eyes and you just look at Jesus as you worship. And at this church, I man, either one of those is fine. We're cool with either one of those. It doesn't matter. All I want as the pastor is for you to see Jesus. And some of the outward manifestations look, might look a little bit different for some of you and for others. That doesn't matter. The, the outward reflection does not matter. What I want is a changed heart. What I want is you to gaze at Jesus. In worship, I want your eyes to be fixed on him because I know if I can get you to do that, man, you're gonna change. If you can shift your eyes off of this world, off of the things that brought you in here, the things that are making you depressed, if you can get your eyes off of that, just stop looking at it and look at Jesus, you're gonna be amazed at what he's gonna do and what he's gonna transform. So all of this, all this looking 
is a way to make us brighter like Moses. So let's, let's close with this. So Paul started um, this entire chapter talking uh, about um, the, 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 um, the, the idea to kind of forgive this person, and then he segued into his understanding of what it means to do Christian ministry, to be a Christian. And he will continue this thought all the way up through four, five, and six. So next week we're gonna continue this and on into the following week. But the big idea I don't want you to lose is essentially this. Jesus is infinitely better than anything this world has to offer. That's it. That's what this is all about. Jesus is infinitely better than anything this, has to, this world has to offer, and he is worth taking all of your time to stare at. So, let's summarize with this. If we follow Paul's logic, in his mind, being a Christian, being a disciple of Jesus, means, one, following the the procession of Jesus in your everyday life. So everything you do, everywhere you go, being a Christian means following Christ. It also means allowing him to use you like aroma to fill the areas of life you go into. It means beholding Jesus on a regular basis and letting what you behold change who you are. So as we close, this is my encouragement to you. This is the last thing I want you to think about. You can go back and listen to the message. I'm putting my notes online. If it was a lot, I understand it's it's easy to forget a lot. This is the last thing I want in your mind as we close out and finish today. Stare at Jesus. That's it. If all else fails and you can't remember and you don't know what to do and upside down feels right side up and the world is in chaos, if you don't know what to do, stare at Jesus. If things are fine and things are comfortable and you feel good, stare at Jesus. Why? Because the Bible tells us that you will be changed by what you see. Amen? All right, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.